Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks that you are Lord of all. And uh, hills, valleys, and whatever lies between. And pray now that you would, in mercy, take your word and help us. Help us see who you are and follow you more gladly and more faithfully. Lord, take your word. Let it be that, that which penetrates us deeply and helps us be free from the sin that ensnares us. So help, help each one of us today. Help us, Lord, to receive what you have for us. We, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're, we're getting close to the end of the study of uh, the book of Joshua. You can open your Bibles to Joshua 22. We have a couple more weeks left in this, uh, in this Old Testament book. Where we are now, we've found that the, after hundreds of years of waiting, God's people, Israel, have, have taken possession of and are settling into the land, the land that God had, had promised them. And the closing verses of chapter 21 are kind of like a little mini summary of the book so far. It says, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it. They settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All, all came to pass. And you think about this, that verse 43 there is about, it's kind of like a little backwards summary of the book. It's about them taking possession of the land, moving in and settling in the land. It's kind of a summary of chapters 13 to 21. Verse 44 is really kind of a, a summary of the first 12 chapters, which is the conquest of the land when God gave them victory against their enemies. And verse 45 is this stunning statement of the, the whole book, the story of the faithfulness of God throughout the whole book of, of Joshua. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. And it's so important for us to bring this reality into our day. And one of my favorite stories that helps us think about God being faithful to his promises, kind of in 21st century clothes, is told by a pastor named Vic Pence. It goes like this. He says, about a year and a half ago, I bought a new Navy blazer at Nordstrom. It was one of those cases you may have gone through where you buy an item of clothing and the more you wear it, the more you realize you don't like it. My blazer wasn't the right color and to make matters worse, it attracted lint like it was going out of style and after wearing it pretty regularly for six months or so, I stuck it in my closet and didn't wear it for a long time. But tucked away in the back of my mind, he said, all the while, was that famous Nordstrom unconditional return policy. I thought, I've had this thing for a year and a half. I've worn it lots of times, and there's just no way they're going to take it back. So about two weeks ago, he said, I decided I had nothing to lose. I pulled the blazer out, threw a lot of lint on it to make it look bad, and took it down to Nordstrom's men's department. I walked in. Immediately, I felt nervous. I felt like I was about to pull a scam of some sort, so I played it straight. I walked right up to the first salesman I saw, and I gave this little prepared speech. I said, I'm about to put your famous unconditional return policy to its ultimate test. I have here a blazer. I've worn it lots. I've had it for a year and a half. I don't like it. It's the wrong color, and it attracts lint like it's going out of style. But I want to return this blazer 
for another blazer that I liked. And then I stood there. I couldn't believe it, he said. The guy with the big handlebar mustache just looked at me and shook his head. And then he said, for heaven's sake, what took you so long? Let's go find you a blazer. He said, 10 minutes later, I walked out with another blazer that was marked $75 more than I paid for the one I brought in. It was perfect for me. Didn't cost me a penny. He says, God is like Nordstrom. (laughs) He says more. He says, God makes all sorts of outlandish promises that we cannot bring ourselves to believe, can we? When we get up enough courage or we're desperate enough, we finally take him in his word. And he looks at us and he shakes his head and he says, for heaven's sake, what took you so long? And, you know, you... I want you to carry away from this this little summary at the end of chapter 21 is that we are right to trust God. We are right to lean on his faithfulness even when we've been waiting for what seems like such a long time. We are right to do that. We are right to wait and hope and trust for weeks if need be, for months, for years, Even for decades, we are right to trust God to be faithful to his promises. Out of that little summary, we move into chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he says to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day. But you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Okay, everything that's going to follow in this chapter is predicated on this map. And um, there's a dividing line in the middle of this map. This is a map of the 12 tribes of Israel during the time of Joshua. And you see that line, that's the Jordan River. And there are two and a half tribes that have land east of the river and nine and a half that have it on the west side. It's real important that this is clear in your mind. Manasseh splits. That's why you have the half tribe. So you have the eastern tribes and the western tribes. And it's important to keep that in mind as as we walk through this. So in response to God's great faithfulness, those eastern tribes, those two and a half eastern tribes, have been extraordinarily faithful, Joshua says. In verse 3, when Joshua says that they have not forsaken their brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God, The charge that he has in mind comes from chapter 1 of Joshua, when we first started all this. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, he's speaking to those eastern tribes, right? Joshua says, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land, your wives... Your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, that is on the east side. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. 
and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, towards the east. So the idea is that while their families stayed on the east side of the Jordan, all the men of valor, all the warriors would cross over the Jordan with the western tribes and help with the conquest we've been reading about in the book of Joshua. So they've been fighting with their brothers all of, all of this time. And they've been faithful to that. They've lived apart from their families for a long time, probably years at this point, and faithfully, faithfully stood with their brothers, uh, even in combat in this on the western side of the, of the Jordan. So make a mental note that Joshua only has good things to say about the eastern tribes at this point. Nothing bad, nothing to question them, only positive things. They've only been faithful to what the Lord asked of them and to their brothers. Okay? Tuck that away and keep that in mind as, as we go through this passage. Um, so their example for us is that our best response to God's faithfulness is our faithfulness. Okay? They're showing us that. Our obedience is our best response to God's faithfulness. And it's rooted in his promises. Uh, Scott Hafeman wrote it um, this way. He says, every command of God is built on a promise from God. Every divine call to action is at the same time a divine summons to trust in God's promises. The promises of God are commands in disguise and vice versa. God commands what he commands because he promises. Trust in God's promise would mean obedience to his commands. Disbelief always shows up as an act of disobedience since every promise carries with it a command. Every time we disobey God, it is because we are not trusting his promises. So our right response to God's faithfulness is our faithfulness to his, to his commands to us. Good summary so far goes like this of our passage. Joshua is offering a grateful military commander's final job well done, farewell speech to some of these loyal departing troops from the eastern tribes. And they've finished a unique, tough assignment of shared hardship with their western brothers. And now he's going to challenge them to remain faithful when they return. Look at verse 5. Only, he says to these eastern tribes, be very careful to observe the commands and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. So this is a, this is a beautiful summary of what God is asking of his people as they return to that eastern, eastern shore of the Jordan. It's a beautiful summary of what God is asking us. Okay. Um, walk back through verse 5 with me. And let's kind of take a little inventory, personal inventory, of how we're doing with God asks us of his people in this little summary where he says things like, um, love the Lord your God. 
Walk in all his ways. Keep his commandments. Cling to him. Serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. So first inventory question, are you growing in your love for God? Do you love God more now than you did, say, a year ago? You know, Jesus says this is the most important thing we do. Are you walking in all of his ways and commands? Not selectively, but all of his ways. Are you walking in his command to forgive, to serve, to give, to love? Are there any pockets of disobedience that you're hiding, that you're rationalizing, that you're blame shifting onto your kids or your spouse or your boss or your neighbors? You know, do, do you really think that Jesus will buy your rationale when you say, I didn't love my neighbors because you gave me really lousy neighbors? And I, don't, I don't think that's going to fly. Are, th- are there any areas of disobedience? Are you clinging to him? Like staying clingingly close every day by your daily patterns and rhythms, would you be described as someone who clings to God? Are you serving him wholeheartedly? If I ask you, could you tell me one way that you're serving God? It's just for God. It's not not about you and yours, but about God. See, this is one of those beautiful, powerful little summaries of the life that we are to live. It's a great one to commit to memory. You might want to highlight that one and work on it this week. But Joshua sends them back to their land east of the Jordan. Verse 9, it says that the people of Reuben and people of Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, those eastern tribes, returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. So at this point, the stage is set for a really happy ending to the book of Joshua. Almost. Um, except there's a bump in the next few verses. It's a serious bump because Israel is about to go to war again, and it's civil war. They're about to go to war against each other. Look at verse 10. Um, When they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, the eastern tribes, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So on their way home, evidently, these warriors from these eastern tribes stopped and made an altar Uh, Prior to crossing the Jordan, it's a big one, right? It says it's of imposing size. And the western tribes hear about it, and they are ready to go to war against their brothers over this altar. So, so, So what is that about? Well, the western tribes present their case for war in the next few verses. Verse 13, people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben, people of Gad, tribe of Manasseh, those eastern tribes, in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, 
And with him, ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? So they send, the western tribes send a really important delegation to deal with this matter. They are not, these are not low-level diplomats. These are like cabinet-level leaders. And they are led, interestingly, by a priest. Not just any priest, but a priest whose name is Phineas. And uh, one writer says this of Phineas. The Bible knows Phineas above all as a heroic defender of the faith. Especially of the proper way to worship Yahweh. He is the best known for his decisive violent action at Baal Peor that ended a devastating plague in Israel's camp and won him special praise from Yahweh. So the priest, Phineas the priest, his presence here tells us that this is a kind of holy war that they're going to wage against their brothers because of defective worship of God. The, they use the language of, it's a, it's a breach of faith. It's a rebellion. In verse 18 will say, it's a turning away from the Lord. It's nothing less in their eyes than idolatry, building this altar. And their accusation is kind of rooted in the law of Moses, actually. If you look back to Deuteronomy 12, it says to his people, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose. In one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. And so to, to make their point, then this, uh, this, this diplomatic team brings up two stories of idolatry from Israel's past to press on these eastern tribes to get them to repent of building this altar. The first one comes from a place called Peor. Verse 17. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So here's a quick primer on what this uh, sin at Peor was. It's back from the book of Numbers. Um, It says... um, It occurred many years earlier in the wilderness. It involved the Israelites prostituting themselves by bowing down to Moabite gods, specifically the Baal of Peor, seduced by the women of Moab to do so. A plague had broken out in the Israelite camp as an expression of the Lord's displeasure, and 24,000 people died before Phinehas the priest intervened and caused the Lord's anger to abate. So Peor was, was, was bold-faced idolatry with a sexual component. Now the second story they bring up to press on these eastern tribes about their idolatrous altar was uh, one that you're familiar with if you've been with us in the book of Joshua. It's a, the story of Achan, right, in chapter 7. They say, but now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land. 
where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord, our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So Achan's sin, if you remember, uh, cost them a troubling military defeat. And 36 of their, of their warriors were killed as a result of his sin. But if you go back to that chapter 7 story, you hear Achan's confession. It goes like this. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw the, among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So again, this is bold-faced idolatry. This one has a greed component. And because greed is one of the great kind of hidden sins in our culture, uh, I'd like to just take a moment and think about what greed looks like when it's stalking us. Um, one of the signs of greed taking root in your heart is when you do things that don't make sense. Okay? Like you find yourself standing underneath a Walmart sign for days. Let me, let me explain it to you this way. There's a guy named Manuel Garcia. He stood underneath a dangling sign outside of Walmart's pharmacy for two days in the hopes that one of the sign's letters would fall and knock him out. Um, why? Why would you do this? Well, Garcia posted about his endeavor, of course, on his Facebook page alongside photos of himself standing outside the store. The caption read, Waiting for the P to fall and knock me out so I can sue Walmart. After no letters fell the first day, he actually went back and stood there a second day. Um, again, a letter did not fall. I says day, on Facebook, day two, still waiting. It didn't fall. But, and I don't know whether this is troubling, more troubling than standing under the sign or not, his social media presence triumphed. His photo earned 18,000 likes and 44,000 shares. Right? Greed makes you do things that don't make sense in the vain hope of just getting a little bit more. Um, for... Manuel Garcia, it means standing under a Walmart sign. For Achan, it means stealing. What, what might it look like for you? It might be stealing. Um, come tax time, it might be falsifying what goes into your tax report. But greed can also dress like overwork, where you neglect the people you love most in the world, your friends, your family, your church, in order to get the next latest greatest to move up to the next level. Um, see, the Western tribes are right to be concerned about idolatry finding its way into Israel. Obviously, it's happened before. And, and it brings God's severe judgment on his people when that happens. Not to mention that it's just plain stupid to worship idols. Let me explain it. Uh, I'm going to show you something here, a clip in just a minute. But first, let me warn you about this clip. It is violent. 
It is cartoonish violent violence, and everyone's okay when it's done. But this is why worshiping little gods is foolish. Watch this. Enough! You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature. And I will not be bullied by that. Puny god. <laughs> puny god, right. As Hulk so eloquently put it, why would you worship a puny god when you can worship Yahweh, the maker and sustainer of everything that exists? Um, the folly of idolatry um, is, is evident throughout this passage. But they make this little remark in verse 17. Look closely at verse 17 with me. It says, have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? This was years earlier when they were in the wilderness, long ago. It's hard to wash idolatry out of your hair once you embrace it. It's like a shadow on a sunny day. It follows you everywhere. And it affects others that you love. Look down at verse 20. Just the very last phrase, it says, And Achan did not perish alone for his iniquity. If you remember, his family suffered his fate as well. Idolatry is infectious, it seems. So this morning, where will your lust take you? Where will your greed take you? Which of your loved ones will it pull under with you? See, the Western tribes have a very, very legitimate concern about idolatry, and so do we. Okay? It's a very real concern. But there's something about the way their concerns articulated that seems a little amiss. Um, if you'll if you listen closely to the language that's used, there's a kind of subtle, um, almost discrimination that seems to go on in the, the shaping the language here. Let me show you what I mean in verse 11. Um, the people of Israel, people of Israel, that's a reference to the Western tribes. The people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the Eastern tribes have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. So if the western side of Israel, what's that make the eastern side? They're not Israel anymore. One scholar says, this is a startling statement. The Israelite side defines Israel as territory west of the Jordan and assumes that the eastern side to be the non-Israelite side. And, and it further characterizes um, the East Bank residents as less than full Israelites. Okay? There's something less than that. And you get the same kind of divisive us-them language in verse 19. It says, now, if the land of your possession is unclean, then pass over into the Lord's land. So where they live is unclean and 
land. This is the Lord's land. Can you hear the difference? It's, it's kind of subtle. But there seems to be a very subtle geographical bias, a prejudice, if you will, where because of where they live, the eastern tribes are suspect and thought to be something less than real Israelites. And so the question then is, could this geographical bias, this prejudice, blind the, be blinding the western tribes to what's really going on with this altar? Does it cause them to believe the worst about their brothers and to rush to a needless, baseless, negative judgment about them? Well, listen into the eastern tribe's response, and we'll see if that's the case. Verse 21. The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the eastern tribes, said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, this diplomatic team, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Okay, now that's a pretty serious denial. Okay? You've got to feel pretty confident of your innocence when you say, may the Lord take vengeance on us if what you say is true. They, without reservation, deny even a hint of idolatrous intent. So if not idolatry, then what was the altar about? And if you could say it in a word, it would be fear. And they explain what their fear is in the next few verses. He says, no, but we did it from fear. That in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. So they are afraid of being excluded on the basis of their geography. Okay? And there's that idea again. There's a kind of geographical prejudice playing out here. Professor Robert Hubbard says that this fear is rooted in the Western tribes' not-so-subtle superior attitude their shabby treatment of the eastern tribes as second-class Israelites, and their thinking the worst rather than the best of them. What worries the eastern tribes most is not rebellion by their descendants, but the dampening of their devotion to Yahweh by West Bank exclusionary policy. So they continue in verse 26. Therefore, we said, the eastern tribes, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before 
his tabernacle. So it turns out that the altar was a declaration of faith in Yahweh. It was a hedge against idolatry in future generations, not a step towards it. Um, one writer says the altar marks a symbolic preemptive strike against exclusion. A witness that binds Israelites on both banks to loyal devotion to Yahweh alone and to his tabernacle. Against appearances, the altar aims to attest to their unwavering devotion to Yahweh, not their apostasy. And so it seems like the Western tribes' bias against their brothers may have kept them from considering the Eastern tribes' true and pure motive. And you remember what Joshua had to say about these people. Only good, only faithfulness. There was no evidence in their conduct of anything but faithfulness to Yahweh. The Western tribes' prejudices, their biases, may have shaped all of this. What about, what about our biases? Um, Robert Hubbard says this. He says, one group within Israel would use its geography, divide Israel into parts labeled us and them. He says, in my view, little Jordans, capable of at least of eroding, if not dividing Christian unity, flow quietly through every local Christian congregation. I wonder, do little Jordans flow through our church and have the potential to divide us? Now, we would never divide over something as silly as which side of a river you live on. Um, but would we divide about how we vote? Would you worship freely and gladly right next to a Republican brother or a Democrat sister? Would you do small group with them and do it well? Um, maybe our little Jordans might be based on something as silly as the color of our skin or whether English is our first language or not. And... In a book, Less Than Human, Professor David Livingstone Smith explains that even ordinary people can demean, enslave, and kill other human beings. And based on Smith's research, he says it starts with one important ingredient, the dehumanization of the victims. He says, thinking about your enemies in subhuman categories is a way of creating mental distance, of excluding them from the human family. It makes murder not just permissive, but obligatory. We should kill vermin or predators. He goes on to explain that an early American settler, settlers in Arizona characterized Native Americans as savage beasts. The Nazis depicted Jewish people as rats. The Japanese invaders of China called their victims chinkoro, which means something subhuman like a bug or an animal. Prior to the 1994 Rwandan genocide, the Hutus who killed the Tutsis routinely referred to them as cockroaches. Americans fought barbarian Huns in World War I, and godless gooks in Vietnam. When we slap a dehumanizing label on people, he says, it's much easier to strip them of their dignity and mistreat them. So, do you do that? 
Do you label people in a way that makes them them and not part of us? Where, where they are just a little less than you. Would you refer to immigrants that way? You know, regardless of the language of politics these days, as followers of Jesus, we must not fall prey to demeaning and divisive labels. Because labels matter because Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, it's interesting. In verse 22, their concern is for their children. It's as though present divides can widen in future generations. As though our little Jordans can flow through the generations and carve an even deeper canyon in the lives of our children and grandchildren. For years, the Iron Curtain, which was uh, actually a fence, looks more like this in most places. Um, The Iron Curtain between Eastern and Western Europe separated two populations of red deer living in the forests encompassing the border between Germany and what is now the Czech Republic. And when government officials began to dismantle the fence around 1989, um, around the time the Berlin Wall fell, the physical barrier between those populations was removed. But when wildlife biologists began studying the deer uh, more than about 15 years later, they quickly realized the deer living in Germany were not migrating into the Czech Republic. And the deer living in the Czech Republic were not migrating into Germany. In other words, both populations of deer were still behaving as if the fence remained intact. So one deer in particular became like a microcosm of the entire population. Her name is Ahornia, and her movements in the forests of eastern Germany were tracked for several years by a GPS collar that had been fitted to her neck. During that time, she was monitored. Ahornia's location was tracked more than 11,000 times in Germany, but not a single time in the Czech Republic. She was tracked at the border of the two countries several times, but she never crossed over. Two elements of Ahornia's story are particularly noteworthy. First, she was born 18 years after the destruction of the Berlin Wall and Uh, the fence that comprised the Iron Curtain. She has no physical memory of the fence's existence, and yet she is still blocked by it. Second, the land formerly occupied by the fence and its guard towers has now been turned into a large and thriving nature preserve. In other words, the land beyond the fence has become a haven, the perfect home for deer like Ahornia and her family, and yet she will not enter. Um, Teams of biologists have come up with several explanations for the deer's strange behavior. Filmmaker uh, Tom Sinatsky, who often works in this area, offers this simple explanation. According to Tom, the wall in her head is still there. So, Will, will the walls in our heads live on in our children's heads and our children's children's heads? See, we dare not allow our prejudices to be passed on to our children and their children. But there's good news, okay? 
the story ends well. Uh, look down verse 33. There's a report given by Phineas back to the people of Israel. The report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against the eastern tribes to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. So Phineas reports, it's all good and everybody rejoices and there's hugs and stuff, right? So why? Why did it work out when it was so divided, almost on the point of civil war, right before this? See, something trumped their biases. Something mattered more than their prejudices. And you see it in the very last verse of our passage. The people of Reuben and the people of God called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us the eastern and the western tribes, that Yahweh is God. Their common faith trumped their differences. And And it must swallow up ours too, right? Red and yellow, black and white, Democrat, Republican, Green, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Calvinist, Wesleyan, We share a common faith that is far, far greater than our our differences. At least it should be. The question is, is it for you? Is it for me? See, as we say at our weddings, let no man put asunder that which God has joined together. And that's, that's what we remember when we come to this table. That what unites us is so much greater than what is different, what could divide us. You know, there was a kind of prejudice in the New Testament church at Corinth that was such that Paul said they should get right with one another before they approach the Lord's Supper, or some of them might die. Literally die. It was that important. And so this morning, as we approach the table, let me encourage you, the worship team's going to lead us uh, in a meditation as we, as we come to the table. And as they do that, there'll be an instrumental time at the beginning. And let me just invite you to use that as a time to reflect on what God has been saying to you and to confess any sin that might be yours that's divisive between any person in this room or any people that might come into this room. And then when they begin... Uh, The vocalists begin to sing, you're invited to come to the table and find grace here that's greater than your sin, right? Because we're going to remember together that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. And we confess we're good at dividing. We're good at looking down on and thinking less of. And have mercy on us, Lord. Forgive us. 
the biases and the prejudices that are deep inside of us that would divide us except for this table and the triumphant love of God in the giving of your son. His body broken, his blood poured out to make us a people who are one. So Lord, in this quiet time of reflection, hear our prayers of confession and then accept our worship and our obedience as we draw near to you.